Oh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Matt. I'm a member here at the Oak Church. And uh, we've been looking at uh, Colossians, which is the letter to the church in Colossae, which is um, a city in modern-day Turkey. So we've been looking at the letter to the Colossian church in Scripture over the last couple of months. It's a letter Paul, one of the early church leaders, wrote, and it is just massive in its scope. So it scales from like the creation of the universe and the God who holds everything together down to how these people in this city, Colossae, in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, should think about parenting and marriage and family life and everything in between. And at the centre of every part of this letter, though, is Jesus. And I've been hearing and reading stories about Jesus my entire life. Uh, I was raised going to church. And... He is still the most astonishing and surprising and captivating man. I still find myself surprised by him. I still find myself moved. I still find in him the answers to so many of my questions and my doubts. I still find I need him. And as individuals, as people, and as a church, as the Oak Church, if we ever start reaching the point where we feel we're ready to move on from Jesus to bigger and better things, if we ever start reaching a point where our worship, our gatherings together, our hearts are becoming focused less and less on Jesus, and more and more on other things, then we are suddenly in deep and terrible danger. I remember when I went to uni in Durham, I attended a wonderful church up there called King's Church. And one of the leaders there was a man called Mark Bonington. One of the things he used to say over and over again is we need to keep the main thing the main thing. There's lots of other stuff in the world that may excite us or concern us. Lots of stuff in church that may excite us or concern us. Many of that is really important, but it's not the main thing. And what I hope we'll see this morning in the scripture we're going to read in a moment, it's Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I hope what we'll see is two big ideas. And the first is, as we sink deeper into the mystery of Christ, we will more and more know and practice love. And as we know and practice love, we will more and more understand the mystery of Christ. Love and knowledge may be separated sometimes in the practice of science, of art, of our, of our work lives, all kinds of things. They are inseparable in the kingdom of God. And secondly, I hope we will see together that knowing Jesus is the great calling on your life, on my life. I hope this morning you will know that what God wants for you and from you is first and last for you to know Jesus more and live your life with him as your foundation. So I'm going to read for us now in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. It should be appearing behind me on the screen, um, or you can uh, get it from, there's Bibles on either side of the, the room, or uh, if you brought your own Bible or it's on your phone. Uh, Colossians chapter 2. Verses 1 to 7. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in the body, 
I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now, a, a bit here about where we come from. Paul has just been sharing about how he and all the people with him are so determined to tell people about Jesus at this enormous personal cost. At one point he puts it, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. They are prepared to suffer, to share the good news of Jesus. And he now starts this passage we've just read by saying, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea. Now, Laodicea, it's another city just nearby to Colossae, and for all who have not met me personally. You know, as Christians, we are not little islands. We work out our faith as a people. And so what we do here in Leeds and Bradford is intimately connected to the work of God's people elsewhere in the world, even people we've not met yet. Paul is convinced that God is so concerned for the whole church, even those bits he's never seen. And as as an aside, I I was reading this and I was thinking this week, do I see things like that? As a church, do we have this heart for our brothers and sisters around this country and around the world? Do we see what we do and what they do as connected? I was so challenged by what Lucy's just been sharing. There are brothers and sisters who most of us have never met, but they are They are serving the Lord and they are loving people on the other side of Europe and we are connected to them. Do we pray about that? Do we seek to encourage our brothers and sisters? Do we see ourselves as on mission together with them? But this morning, I would invite us to include ourselves in this group Paul's talking about. We are people who've not met Paul personally. And, you know, I think it's important to be careful about shoving ourselves into the text here. We want to think about, okay, what was this person saying at the time rather than just thinking, oh, this is all about me. But we also believe Scripture is a living word, and God wants to use this for our benefit as well. In Psalm 22, it talks about the vindication of God's suffering servant, the vindication of the Christ. And it then says about future generations at the end of the psalm, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Scripture is written to people in certain times and places, and we need to take that into account. It's a very human book, but it is also God's word for us, the future generations, the people yet unborn. And Colossians is one long letter of Paul telling the church in Colossae and telling us here, 2,000 years later, Jesus has done it. He has taken away sin and defeated death and made us right with God for all eternity. The good news that Paul and so many others are talking about is intended for you. But why is Paul going through all this? What does he want to see happen? Well, he continues in verse 2. My goal is that they, that is the church at Colossae, the church at Laodicea, all those people he's not met yet, I believe us here, may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this, Paul is saying, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. I'm sure you've come across that phenomenon of someone who is very well educated, but also just not very bright. Like, I know I have. Um, there's, there's some people I know, school just wasn't, wasn't their thing, but they're the smartest people I know. And then, on the other hand, I regularly have moments where I'm in my kitchen, and I'm like, I'm a grown man, I went to university, I, I'm sure I put my keys down there last night. Why are they not there? And, like, I once searched through a bin for my keys because they were nowhere else in the house. I'd been searching for ages and ages. The only thing I could think of was I must have thrown them in the bin by accident. Um, turns out they're in my coat pocket all along. Like There's a difference between education and good sense. Uh, and there's also a difference between fine-sounding arguments, the wisdom of this world, and understanding the mystery of God. What we see going on in the background of this letter to the church in Colossae is there's some kind, maybe lots of different kinds of teachers going around in the area, and they're offering up these smart-sounding philosophies and secret insights into the universe and new rituals and patterns of behavior and diet that they say they're going to make you right with God. They're saying, Jesus isn't quite enough. You need this new special knowledge. And Paul keeps kind of nodding to this through the letter. We've already seen, and he, he mentions it here as well. He says here, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. There's, there's people going around making arguments that sound really smart, but have nothing to do with the good news of Jesus. And I don't want to spend too long talking about that, really, except to say that in the first letter to the church in Corinth, in chapter 3, we read, the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. The good news of Jesus Christ, it doesn't look like normal human wisdom. It doesn't look like clever arguments or great philosophy. It looks like a Galilean peasant who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, through whom all things hold together, dying a criminal's death, dirty and broken, taking on all your frailty and shame and sin and death so that you might be reconciled, you might be made right, made holy in God's sight, so that you might be given an eternal inheritance, so that you might have the gift of the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, the hope of glory. The good news of Jesus Christ is not exclusive like human wisdom can be. It's not some kind of secret society or private club or sort of spiritual mensa where only the cleverest people can join. You know, a lot of these religious groups around the early church, in fact, a lot of groups today, they benefit from having a secret mystery at the center, which you can only get to if you show enough insight or understanding or sometimes hard cash. You know, you can have all the secrets of the universe revealed if you buy my book or if you pay to go on this course and so on and so on. That's not the good news. Paul says in this letter, the mystery's revealed. It's not really a mystery anymore. Paul gives the whole thing away. He's doing all this, he says, in order that the church in Colossian, that we might know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Let's not beat around the bush. There's no secret to Christianity. There's no super spiritual level you need to get in. You don't need a certain level of education or a certain lifestyle. or You don't need anything. You don't need anything at all, really. If you want to understand the mystery of God, if you want the riches of eternal life and the transformation that comes with it, Christ offers himself to you to follow him now. That's it. 
That's all it is. And yet in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I can't remember where I first heard this analogy, but Christ in his kingdom, it's a bit like an ocean. All it takes to enter it is a single step. And children can play in the shallows and be delighted. But it is vast and wide and you can spend a lifetime plumbing its depths and still not come to the end of all its beauty. And you know, on the sidelines, there's a bunch of people and ideals and products calling out and saying, oh, don't be so silly paddling in the, in the sea like children. You look ridiculous. Come over here and we'll tell you what all the clever people are saying and doing. Listen to us, buy us, do what we say, and you'll be one of the special people. But the Holy Spirit is saying to us through scripture, my child, don't be deceived. There's no secret. There's no longer any mystery. Come and follow Jesus. So how do we go deeper into this great ocean that is Christ and his kingdom? How do we uncover all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? And it's not the way that you might expect. I want to go back to these verses where Paul explains what he's, why he's going through everything he's going through to preach the good news. And I find the order here just really interesting. He says it's that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. The order of this is really interesting to me. What comes first here? It's encouragement and it's love. The path to wisdom and understanding and all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, it doesn't really start with deep, intense study, meditation, contemplation, though the journey may well take you there along the way. The path starts with love. First, God loves us and tells us the good news that he loves us and he encourages our hearts. And his longing for you and I is that we accept Christ for ourselves, that our hearts will be encouraged and so that we will be united together in love. And it's love that leads to understanding that leads us deeper into the mystery of Christ. Love drives us to study scripture, to pray, to listen to the Holy Spirit as he leads, to learn from one another more about Jesus. You cannot be a mature Christian unless you also love deeply. Scripture is really clear about this. Paul says in uh, the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And when I, when I talk about love, I'm not talking about love as in like the warm and fuzzies, you know, kind of, oh, I feel really loved up today. Oh, I feel really good today. Love, I'm talking about practical obedience to God and care for others. I'm talking about something really concrete, the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, it's so interesting because it tells us that wisdom, it doesn't have loads and loads to, of, to do with what we might think of as up here, the head. It has a huge amount about what we might think of as here and here, the heart and the hands. It's practical. It's about how you manage your time and your words and your family life and your friendships and sex and money and justice and generosity. And Proverbs tells us that how you manage all that and more is ultimately going to be decided by who and what you love. And specifically, it tells us in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear, meaning the respect, the awe of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom comes out of relationship. And as we practically love one another, 
and God, as we are united in love, as all of God's people, but even, let's just think about this as the Oak Church, as you, you and the person next to you, here right now today, as you show love for each other, that is so that we might have the full riches of complete understanding, and together we're drawn more into Christ, the mystery of God. And then as we understand Christ better and see more clearly his love for us in all our sins and messiness, as our hearts are filled with hope and encouragement, he invites us to love more deeply and so come to understand him better still. It's a cycle. It goes round and round. If you love God and his people and his world and you want to love them better, I encourage you to seek out more of Jesus. And if you know Jesus and you want to know him more, I encourage you to seek out ways you can demonstrate love. Lord, help us to be a people who love. Help us to be a people who know Jesus. Because he is the one we are called to be rooted in. He is the one who is to be our foundation. The last part of our passage says, in verses 6 and 7, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And this is what is at the heart of the letter to the Colossians. This is what is actually at the heart of all scripture. This invitation to not just know about Christ, but to be united with him to be in Christ, to be rooted and built up in him. We can build our lives on all sorts of things. We talk sometimes, don't we, about building a life for ourselves, or we talk about laying down roots, putting down roots, and there's that picture here of settling down, saying this ground, this foundation, it's going to be where I'm secure. This is what I'm going to make the center of my life. This is what I'm going to build my life around, and this is going to sustain me. This is going to see me through. And there's a million things that could be. For the people Paul's writing to, of course, there's these new teachings saying, yeah, Jesus is all right, but if you really want good foundations for your life, if you're really going to make it in this life, you're going to need something more. And if you come with me, I'll bring you into the secret, into the mystery. But I don't know what we'd find if we dug down into your roots. I'm sure if you're like me, we'd actually find all sorts of things there that we're building our lives on. And some of them would be wonderful, God-given things like family and friendships that we were made to enjoy. And some would be maybe nice things. Society tells us we have to be rooted in, like career or possessions or good health. All good things that God cares about. Some would probably be really weird things. I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to question that. But some would be even wrong things, habits or beliefs or ideals that harm us or harm others but that we cling to. Old grudges and resentments and sins that have ended up becoming a part of how we see ourselves and who we are. Some of our roots may even be about our religion. We're the most moral people. We've got the best theology. We do church better than other people. But the thing with all this stuff is, some of it can sustain us for a few years. Some can sustain us for a lifetime. Some, frankly, could be poisoned roots that are killing us, and Jesus wants to free us from that. But none of those things, even the best things, are eternal. And we are made to be eternal creatures. Jesus teaches that you were made for a lot more than just one short life. You were made for joy. You were made for eternal joy. And so ultimately, if we root ourselves, if we build our whole lives on any foundation that is not eternal, it will not be enough. 
The water will dry up, the foundations will crumble, the roots will wither. And one day we eternal creatures will stand before our creator who has loved us, carrying with us all our frailty and sins and little cruelties and unkindnesses and slanders and selfishness, all the big stuff too. Most of us carry things that we feel deep shame over. That's just normal, that's a part of being human. But there will be nothing to take those things away, nothing left of what we built our lives on. And we will be like trees with shriveled roots standing in the blazing beauty of the sun. But in Christ, there is someone who turns all of that around, someone who freely welcomes all people, including me, including you. Jesus tells the parable, you likely know this parable of the wise builder and the foolish builder. Uh, The foolish builder, he builds a house on sand, but the wise builder builds his house on a rock. And a storm comes and the rain comes down and the floodwaters rise. The house on the rock stands firm and the house on sand collapses. And Jesus says that the person who builds their house on the rock is the person who hears his words and puts them into practice, who builds their life on him. And I always imagine in that story that building a house on rock is probably a lot harder. Uh, I say probably, I've never built anything more complex than flat pack furniture in my life, but I have sat through my fair share of home renovation TV programs, and it looks, it looks terrible. It looks terrible. There's, there's always that interview where the couple are like, oh, we're over budget, we're exhausted, we're sleeping in a caravan with three kids, the place is a mess, and then they're finished, and it's like, oh, beautiful, and Kevin MacLeod or whoever is stroking his chin, he's talking about the lighting, and it's just lovely. <laughs> You know, if you build your life on Jesus, it will not always be easy. It will not guarantee an easy life. You may well find yourself just like Paul and having all kinds of trouble. And along with that, I do trust Christ when he says he's rest for the weary and good news for the poor. And I do trust my own experience. Alongside hard times, you will find all kinds of joys and comforts when you root yourself in Christ. Sometimes of the most remarkable kind, I have known such tangible beauty in following Christ. There is a sense in which sometimes we begin to experience the eternal life Jesus promises, even in this life. He cannot be taken away from you, not by anything. Why is Paul able to talk about being overflowing with thankfulness after going through some horrendous times? And I'm sure he will have met those times with grief and hurt and anger. It's not wrong to feel those things. But he's able to overflow with thankfulness. Because while other things come and go, no one can take from him the most precious thing of all. There is only so much that can be done to him. And even the worst things can frequently be undone. Martin Luther, he was a a church leader in the uh, 1500s, and he was known for preaching the grace, the free gift of salvation in Jesus. And he got into a lot of trouble for it. He was in a lot of danger for much of his life. But one of the things he said about that is, chop my head off and it won't harm me. I have a God who will give me a new one. Now, I don't know if I could... I could feel that brave and courageous. But what, but what he's saying, um, he had a lot of pithy sayings, but what he's saying here is actually even the worst things that the world can bring in Christ can be undone. 
in Christ, even some of the worst things that can happen are not the end of our story because no one can take Christ from us. Other things can happen. Other things can come and go, things that can really hurt us, but nothing can take Christ from us when he is our foundation. In Christ, we no longer carry our sins. Earlier in this chapter, chapter 1, verse 22, we read, Now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Christ takes all our sins, all that junk, that sin, that shame, it's gone. And so when we stand before our creator who has loved us, we will be able to withstand being in his presence. In fact, it will be a joy to us because he himself will sustain us in Christ. In Christ before God, you will not be a tree without roots in the blazing heat of the sun. Your story will not end in destruction. Instead, you will be, in the words of the first psalm, like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. In Christ, we find ourselves taken up into true love and true joy and true life. Things, all other wonderful gifts we're just pointing to. You know those... Those good things we enjoy, they're never meant to be the be-all and end-all. They're never meant to be our foundations. Part of why they are there is to point us to the one who is the true foundation. And as we are joined to Christ in that great reconciliation and renewal of all things, when all that has been robbed will be restored, and when the Lord shall wipe every tear from every eye, we shall know what it is to truly, perfectly love. And that love will lead us to full understanding and true wisdom and true knowledge and we will finally fully know the mystery of God namely Christ Father God we thank you for your son Jesus we thank you that he is the fulfillment of all your promises that in him we are holy and blameless without blemish adopted into your family as your beloved children that he can never be taken from us And this morning, I invite all of us, Lord, help us to repent, to turn away from the things that don't sustain, that we have rooted ourselves in, that we've built our lives on. And instead, may we receive Christ Jesus as Lord. May we continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you, Lord, have taught us and overflowing with thankfulness. Thank you, God. Well, we have some time now, I think, to respond. Um, And again, my encouragement to all of you would be to respond and say, is Christ the foundation of my life? Do Do I need to revisit that? Are there things that have taken root there that maybe need to be pulled up? And if you haven't yet made Christ your foundation, I just really encourage you, now is the time to do that. He's inviting you to do that today. He loves you and he wants to be with you. He wants to be the eternal foundation for your eternal life. But I'll uh, let Graham lead us in our response now.